to climb as well as I did in the finals and and make a podium as well felt like the felt like the culmination of like almost a decade of really really hard work having an eating disorder felt mandatory in the sport in tears the whole time went out to climb didn't do well in the speed round and like ultimately made the decision that I would Welcome to another episode of the That's Not Real Climbing podcast. I'm your host, Jenny, and I'm excited to introduce my guest for today, Campbell Harrison. Campbell represents Team Australia and is one of the Oceania region's top competitors for moving on to the Olympics in the Boulder and Lead combined category. He also recently got elected to the IFSC Athletes Commission, so in this episode, we'll talk about causes he'd like to champion through that, what it's like competing as an Australian, and he also opens up about his past struggles with eating disorders as well as why he was partially missing in Olympic qualifiers in 2020. Hope you enjoy this episode with Campbell. Yeah, you just came off of a really busy season, so how's it going? Yeah, good. It's uh it's still going at this point. We've got um kind of the biggest event of the year coming up in for like three weeks or so, the um Continental Olympic qualifier for the Oceania region. So officially qualified for that event i'm on the start list and now the kind of final preparations begin for uh yeah what should be an interesting and exciting and terrifying experience congrats yeah what's the uh can you remind us of the dates again oh i think it is the 24th and 25th of november yeah yeah we've got the finals are on the 25th on the saturday so that'll be when the uh, yeah, Olympic ticket gets crowned for the Australia-New Zealand region. Looking forward to that. Um, how are you feeling for it? Yeah, really good. Um, the selection events, we had two separate selection events, a, a lead one and a boulder one, and I got first in the lead and second in the boulder. Um, so I'm going into the event as the first place seated athlete. And yeah, shape feels really good. Um, feeling quite consistent which is really nice. Um, and that's kind of all you can really hope for. I think that's going to be the kind of the main game of this one is maintaining that consistency um, across the two disciplines to, you know, hopefully for me, I think it's going to be more a matter of keeping up in bouldering and then hopefully I can score some extra points in lead that will, will make the difference and fingers crossed, take the ticket. Yeah. Well, we're all rooting for you. <laughs> That'll be really yeah, exciting. Thank you. Yeah. And I definitely want to get into that a little bit more in a bit, um, but yeah, I think it'd be great if we just got to know you a little bit first in general. Um, well, actually, so first of all, I think this is just like top of mind for me right now because I just had my interview with Matt Groom lately, and um, some people were also curious about the commentary that you've done co-commentating. Um, which World Cups did you... Uh, co-commentate on uh this year i just did Briançon, um for the finals um but i've done lots and lots over the years actually i think like in 2017 i did a bunch 2016 i think i did some as well so kind of like over the years i've done lots of different events and it's yeah it's always been like so much fun for me and I think it's uh 
something like outside of climbing, like sports broadcasting is really interesting to me. And I really enjoy like getting behind the mic and experiencing it from that side of things. So it's like something that you're maybe interested in pursuing in the future. Oh yeah, for sure. Like if I've, if I retired tomorrow and the IFSC live stream commentator gig was up for grabs, like I would have my name in the, in the ring for sure. I think it's so much fun and like kind of a dream post athletic career or one of a few but yeah I uh, like really enjoy it every time I get the opportunity to do it. What's your experience like in the commentary box as I guess an athlete and is it like do you find it stressful or is does is it like a smooth experience for you? Um, It's not super stressful for me I think especially when I'm not anchoring the cast like I've done a few for uh, national competitions where like I'm in charge and that can be a little bit stressful sometimes. Um, I think by doing the commentary, I've definitely developed some empathy for commentators for the details they miss and the mistakes they make. Like you, you would never think it, but you've just got so much going on in your head. You're always thinking of like what to say next. It's so easy to like forget that, oh, this isn't the hype way of the route. Like someone else actually did an extra move or especially in bouldering when there's so much going on. Like, you know, you might have a commentator say, oh, it's our first top of this boulder when someone else has already topped it. But that's because not only are they tracking between four to eight different climbs at the same time, but they've also got someone, you know, yabbering away in your ear telling you when the ad breaks are going to be. Um, you're also, you'll have maybe one, two, even three different screens or sheets of paper with information in front of you. Just so much, so much coming in all at once. So it is really easy to make mistakes, but it also keeps it really exciting. So like as a co-commentator for IFSC, you don't have to deal with any of the extra noise and voices in your ears? Not as much. Like you still have some of the voices and the details and things, but I think at the end of the day, like if you if you mess up, it's not really on you, I guess. Um, yeah, so it's a little bit less stressful. Um, but you also have like an opportunity to um, like impart some new knowledge. You know, most, even a commentator like like Matt, you know, won't necessarily have that like firsthand information of what it's like to be behind the wall and what it's like to go through the process of a World Cup as an athlete. So um yeah, it's, it's fun to share that side of it as well in a way that doesn't always, you know, viewers at home don't always get to experience it like that. So that's quite nice as well. Did you find that you had any like uh, go-to phrases like Matt does when you're doing the full commentary? Oh gosh, I probably do. I'm sure if I went back and listened, there's probably things that I would, I would repeat. Um, not that I can think of off the top of my head, but I do remember like from doing I did a youth nationals event where I was commentating for three days in a row and you do just start to feel like a bit of a robot just saying the same things again and again and again so I'm sure there's stuff in there that that other people would pick up on that I'm not noticing but in the moment you're just like trying to think of interesting things to say that you've kind of already said for the last however many hours yeah couldn't bear to watch it back oh yeah no one likes <laughs> yeah. to hear their voice on tape so, oh, yeah, uh, I get that. It's yeah. the worst. Um, so, yeah, you were commentating already a bit in 2016, 2017. So you've kind of been on the scene for quite a while. Um, how 
old were you when you first started climbing and like first started competing? Yeah, so I first started climbing, I think I was around eight years old. Um, and at that point, it was just for fun. Um, I, I think as a kid and even as an adult, I've been like super into video games, especially like as a kid, I was obsessed with the Tomb Raider series. And I think in my mind, I connected Tomb Raider with rock climbing. So I thought like it would be a fun little sport for me to do because like I was a, I was a pretty athletic kid in that I could like I could run and I was strong, but like didn't really connect with ball sports. I wasn't super coordinated at them. So I thought I'll give climbing a go for whatever reason. And, um, just like fell instantly in love with it. Uh, and just over time started climbing more and more and more thought I was really good at it. Started doing competitions, realized I was actually not that good at it. Um, and like that really lit a fire underneath me that I'd never really experienced before. I think I started, um, I started training really hard and saw the gains, like saw the benefits or how fast I was improving and just got like totally addicted to that experience. And then that developed into a real like ambition to, to pursue excellence within climbing, I guess. So I started doing my first international competitions in 2012 when I was uh, like 14, 15. Um, and yeah, and then progressed onto the senior circuit sort of through 2015, 2016 um, and have competed on the World Cup circuit pretty much every year since then. And I think, um, yeah, the like improvement I've made from coming like at the very bottom of the pack at my first World Cups, to, like now being able to make semifinals, you know, all the once in a season, I've like really enjoyed that experience. And I think for me, that's like a huge draw card of climbing is just yeah, like I really enjoy that competitive side and I really enjoy just pushing my limits and like, you know, always chasing the next thing. Yeah. So you went from youth to the internet or the adult circuit. Um, like how do you determine when you're ready to go into like the adult <laughs> portion? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Um, oof, I don't even... I don't even know if you could say that I was ready when I did. I think especially when you when you're competing some in somewhere like Australia, the there kind of isn't if you want to compete internationally, you've got like the one competition a year at World Youth Championships. Um, and then there's not really anything else. Like we don't have a youth series, like a continental youth series. The competitions within like the domestic calendar can be a little bit sporadic sometimes. So if you want to keep pushing the limits, then the senior World Cup circuit is kind of the thing that you've got, or at least it was when I was sort of making that transition. Um, and I think I just knew that competing on the World Cup circuit was like was my dream and my goal within the sport. And so I just decided that that was what I was going to do, I guess. And I think initially it was like, super terrifying and super overwhelming and you know I definitely wasn't uh wasn't competitive by any stretch but you know if you want to if you want to accomplish something like the first step to getting that to making that goal is trying you know you're never going to win a world cup if you never enter a world cup so I just 
I guess I just decided I had to take that leap and make it happen and see where it goes. So was it as simple as just like deciding that you're going to sign up for the other one? No, I guess I guess not. Like there is a qualification process, of course. Like you have to be able to um, be competitive nationally. Uh, like for instance, I was still um, like I think I won my first senior nationals in 2015. Um, so by being consistently competitive on the national circuit, I was qualified for the international circuit. So obviously, you know, you have to you have to qualify. You have to have those results domestically. Um, you also have to save a lot of money. Um, I think I've, you know, all through high school, I had a part-time job and I was just saving, saving, saving and not really spending any of it. So there's also the financial side of things as well. That's a, like a big barrier. Um, but you know, if you, once you have accomplished those things, yeah, it's, it's just a matter, I guess, of like putting in the work, being brave and taking the leap, I guess. So just for like the travel costs and the fact that it goes all around the world I guess yeah for sure like my first big world cup trip was like over three months of being in Europe overseas with with my some of my other teammates traveling all around so um yeah the the cost adds up pretty quickly and I didn't have any kind of like financial sponsorship or support at that time as well and um the Australian team is like totally self-funded so um, yeah, the the financial side of things is definitely like a big barrier that you have to be ready to tackle. And there are like a lot of sacrifices, I think, that come into making that happen. So yeah, it's I talk about jumping onto this World Cup circuit like it's simple, but maybe that's just because it's such a priority for me that it's like, that, but, you know, in my mind, I was like, well, that's the thing I'm going to do. So I'm going to do everything I can to make that happen. Um, but ultimately, yeah, it's like quite a, heavy involved decision just you know putting aside the resources to even think about you know heading over there yeah absolutely I mean it's like a huge sacrifice in terms of everything like money your time what you dedicate your energy towards it's a it's a lot yeah for sure and I think like I think that was something that maybe set me apart from some of my other competitors when I was young was that I really was, I was very open and forward about climbing being my priority. If even with like school teachers and things that would be like, why haven't you finished your homework? And it's like, well, be honest with you. Like my priority wasn't finishing my homework. My priority was finishing my training. And you know, that's maybe not everyone's way of looking at things, but it's definitely like how I decided to tackle it. And, um, I think that's part of why I've been able to kind of make climbing my my job is that even before it was actually like a job, you know, you have to treat it as such and, you know, take yourself and it very seriously. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I guess from being on the youth circuit and the adult circuit, how do you feel like you've grown throughout those, throughout those years? Oh, God, so much, so much. Like... I'm definitely a completely different person to what I was when I was, you know, starting out. Um, yeah, I think, I don't know, being on the World Cup circuit, especially heading over there a lot of the time alone as like the only Australian, I got these like really unique opportunities to mix with a whole bunch of climbers from a whole different, you know, a bunch of different countries um, and really just like 
learned so much and it totally changed my work ethic as an athlete and you know my capacity to be independent um and not to mention you know my climbing itself like my climbing ability and my approach to my training um where I was able to grow a lot from those experiences I think and yeah how did you feel like emotionally going through those times because it's really hard as a kid I'm sure I like have seen just like youth competitions and you can like feel the air there like there's so much stress in the air and then afterwards everyone's like crying and it's just like it doesn't really feel great being there um, do you feel like there's a big emotional difference between how you perceived it as a youth versus an adult? Oh, yeah. You talk about crying at competitions, and I, as a kid, definitely did my, or as a teenager, definitely did my fair share of crying at competitions. Um, I think when I was starting out, when I was younger, it had more of a, like, be-all and end-all feeling to it, um, competition climbing. You know, if one competition went bad, like, I remember, I remember this one competition. It was right before I headed over to my first sort of World Cup circuit, and I came second uh, in a senior comp. And I remember just like standing in the shower, sobbing, like just sobbing. So I was like, "Oh my god, I'm not ready." And I look back, and I'm like, you know, uh, I don't think like there were so many factors that played into me coming second in that event. Um, and, but, you know, as a young person, I just wasn't really able to like, look at the whole picture like that. It was just, you know, if you're not, if you're not first, you're last kind of earlier sort of mentality. Um, yeah. And it was definitely, you know, I definitely had its lows and its highs. There were some times where doing it all and committing to it all has been really, really hard. And then there are other times where it like pays off and it feels like it's, you kind of trick yourself into feeling like it's been easy the whole time. That sounds, um kind of dramatic with the shower it's like just standing in there crying thinking that it's the end of the world imagine yeah i mean you know yeah when you're uh when you're in your teens it can feel like that sometimes it can all feel like the yeah it can feel like the end of the world um or, you know you get older and you grow up and you start to yeah be able to conceptualize things a little bit more and um I think you see like all the competitions that you've done in the past and then all the competitions you have yet to do in the future. And it's a lot easier to look at it as just like one piece of a greater puzzle. Whereas, you know, when it's, when it's kind of your first, just stepping onto the sea and it can kind of feel like, you know, this is the moment, like this is the only moment, this is everything that your life has kind of come to. And then, you know, I'm 26 now, I'm like not old by any means, but old enough to kind of realize, oh, like I've been competing for, 11 years now and you know probably competing for a you know good few more years to go so it's like it's kind of all just part of the journey yeah absolutely and so previously you also mentioned that oftentimes you would be like the only australian um at the world cups and so kind of just wanted to dive into climbing in australia since it's still i guess sort of a developing sport there um well, I guess, first of all, you just came off of uh, the national bouldering um, or the bouldering nationals. Um, and I saw you took a really big fall. That shocked me. That's like the biggest fall that I think I've seen in a competition recently. 
Um, I'll link it in the show notes for everyone to see. But um, yeah, in general, how did it go? Yeah, I mean, yeah, you mentioned that fall. That was probably the that was definitely the biggest fall I've ever taken in climbing, like comp or otherwise. Um, and it was pretty scary coming into this competition. Um, had some pretty big goals. I think I Bolden Nationals had kind of always gone badly for me. Um, I feel like I've had really great performances on sort of all levels of the domestic circuit. I'd like one team selection events and things like that. But then when Bolden Nationals came around, I'd never been able to even make finals. I think my best result was like eighth. So I definitely felt like a little bit of pressure going into this event that I was putting on myself to like be able to sort of break that curse, I guess. Um, but yeah, I think this event was like one of those bouldering events where I feel like my kind of headspace was at its best my physical shape was probably the best it's been for bouldering and um yeah was just like able to be really consistent throughout the rounds and so when I like finished my semi-final and know like knew that I was progressing to the next round like that was a really emotional experience um and then yeah to climb as well as I did in the finals and and make a podium as well felt like the felt like the culmination of like almost a decade of really, really hard work um, on probably my less proficient discipline, you know, of the two. So yeah, it was a really like emotional experience. And I think I surprised myself in a lot of ways, like, you know, regarding the, the, the massive fall I took on the, fin- the second finals boulder, like I was super rattled and super scared and then still managed to like pull back on and top of the boulder and I was the only person in the round who managed to to finish that block and so yeah it was a yeah that comp was a big moment for me um and like something I think I'll be proud of for a really long time yeah is bouldering something that you actually enjoy competing in or are you kind of just doing it because of the whole combined format oh no I I really love bouldering um and I really love competing in bouldering I think I think it's bouldering has definitely changed a lot in the time that I've been competing. And I think maybe sometimes it doesn't feel like quite like the sport that I initially signed up for. And I think that's why I um, gravitate towards, well, part of why I gravitate towards lead a little bit more. It's a little bit more um, classic in terms of the elements of climbing that I um, really resonate with and that got me into the sport. Um, but no, I do really enjoy bouldering. I just think on an international level, I, I, I would like to be a little bit more competitive than I am, I think. Um, whereas in lead, I feel like I'm continually progressing. So I probably err yeah, towards that discipline a little bit more than, than boulder per se. But I think that's, you know, this event also showed me that that's changing. Like I am becoming more proficient in the modern style and the work is paying off. So I, uh, I don't know, in this past 12 months, I think my attitude toward bouldering has changed a little bit. Um, and I think there's like there's more room to grow in that discipline than I maybe thought there was. I guess I'm kind of surprised that you think lead is still a little bit more old school because um, they've definitely been setting some scary stuff for lead as well. Like I've seen some um, sketchy starts where you're just have to like start on a pretty big jump or they've set some like cliche moves in the middle that uh could be kind of stopper moves do you feel like it's 
going towards this like new school new school style in lead as well or is it just like it's all right yeah they're they're definitely implementing more sort of new school movements into lead um but at the end of the day like the fact that you only have one go in lead um and you know the split is as a result of you know exactly where you fall off on the route i think like these sorts of low percentage moves that take a little bit of time to learn before you can do them just don't lend well to the scoring system within lead so i i think there's only ever going to be like so much room for new school parkour comp style moves in lead and like yeah typically lead still comes down to like a a matter of who's the fittest and who's the strongest and who can kind of hold on for the longest and um yeah that's like part of lead climbing that i really really enjoy um but you know it's nice to have a few little crazy comp moves in there as well but yeah i think we're also seeing a lot of like athletes who are previously boulder specialists especially like the more power centered boulder specialists starting to perform a lot more consistently in lead than they perhaps were in in bouldering to begin with so oh then then they are in bouldering now sorry um yeah so i think it sort of remains a little bit more old school out of the two okay yeah um, so yeah, now back to the Australia stuff. Um, how do you feel about it being a developing sport in Australia and also in general, just like Australia being kind of far from everything um, and like the long travel? I feel like I've heard that's a pretty big issue. How do you deal with those sorts of those sorts of things? Yeah, um, as far as like the development of climbing within Australia, I think, you'd you'd maybe be hard pressed to find a country where climbing is growing faster than in Australia. I think like the the number of gyms that have appeared in just the last five years is is mind blowing. And so it's growing really fast, which presents its own set of problems in terms of like yeah, the development of climbing as like a high performance sport. Um if the you know, certain aspects of the sport are growing way faster than others. So that's really complex in and of itself. Um, and we're not really seeing like the growth of climbing flow into like support of high level athletes yet. So that plays into the issue of, um, of yeah, Australia being just generally speaking, really, really far away from the majority of the comp climbing circuit, um, which yeah, adds a lot of, adds a lot of barriers to people who are like to aspiring competition climbers, you know. Um, I always feel quite jealous of like Europeans who for them going to a world cup is like a weekend away from home. And then for us going to a world cup is like, okay, well, not going to be able to save for a deposit on a house this year because, you know, I have to, I have to pay the equivalent of a mortgage to like go and do this thing. And it's my dream. No one's making me do it. I'm choosing to do it. You know, um, yeah, just wanting to like, just silly things like, oh, I'd love to buy a new bike or I'd love to buy a new laptop or, you know, oh, I haven't replaced my phone in six years, eight years, whatever. Like those are all things that just have to go on hold just as a result of climbing being, of Australia being so far away from the rest of the climbing scene. So it can be tough sometimes, but again, like I said, you know, no one's making us do it. So sometimes you have to swallow that pill and um just keep on keeping on 
do you end up kind of like staying in Europe for a while? I think you mentioned you stayed for like three months before. Yeah, the the way I've found works best for me is if I can pick a city, usually Innsbruck in Austria, um, and rent an apartment like or sublet an apartment from somebody rather than paying like the extortionate Airbnb fees, um, just paying like a standard monthly rent for a room and keeping that room for like a whole three months. Um, and then you can just, then you can treat, yeah, World Cups as like a, more of like a weekend or a couple of weeks. You go away, you do the World Cups, you come back to the home base where you've got, you know, all of your creature comforts and your um, luggage and whatnot. Um, and yeah, rather than, rather than like moving around a lot and paying a lot for really expensive accommodation or, you know, flying to Europe, coming back, flying there again, I like to keep that home base. It's just like a little bit cheaper and a little bit like logistically easier, I think for me. Do you ever like stay and train in Europe or is all your training done back in Australia? Uh, no, I usually, I'll usually try and, um, prepare for the world cups in europe at least that last two to four weeks before i start my season i'll try to train in europe um but you know there's a it's like a it's a it's a very clever careful balancing act because um you know you only have a certain number of days that you can stay within the schengen zone the like european visa zone without um without having an extended visa uh and so, you know, you've got to think like, okay, if I'm going to do these events, then I can train for three weeks before the World Cup season starts in Europe. But, you know, if I skip this event, I can do a little bit of extra training. Or if I skip the training, I can do a little bit, like a few more comps. Um, so, yeah, it gets quite um, quite strategic in that sense. Yeah, there's a lot of planning that goes into it. Yeah, definitely. And how's, how's like your training yeah in australia like is it good for lead or better for bouldering or do you have like coaches i would say i'll stick with for the most part training in melbourne because that's where i live um i would say for bouldering it's decent um it's hard to find like a lot of hard blocks um to to train on but we have we have like quite a few nice gyms. Um, I think you have to get somewhat creative with your training. Um, it has to be quite structured because you know you're not going to have like all of the resources that you could want. Um, but you know if you've got like a decent spray wall and a fingerboard and you know a weights gym and that sort of thing, there's there's quite a lot you can do. Um, for lead, it's gotten better in the last sort of year year and a half, um, but still not still not great i think unless a gym sets roots specifically for me it, i would be hard pressed to find anything much harder than like 7c 7c plus in a gym um which you know world cup roots start at 8b 8b plus so you know um most of my lead training will happen on a spray wall uh, when i'm in melbourne whereas when i go overseas i like really take that opportunity to you know you go somewhere like Innsbruck where maybe there's like 30 routes 8b and above and you just try to get in as much as you can while you're there yeah do you have any thoughts on how um how to like grow the Australian team and how you think it could be better funded 
Oof. Um, I think, I think first and foremost, the Australian team needs more opportunities to train and climb together. I think in the, since like, since COVID blew up initially, I think we've had one training camp as a team, which was announced a week before the camp started. And I think we had maybe five or six people turn out most of which lived in the city that it was being held. Um, so yeah, the Australian team is like very disjointed. We don't get a lot of opportunities to come together and climb together and climb on like high level routes with high level route setting. Um, coaching is quite limited. So I think it would be, yeah, a lot of it's, yeah, it's really tough. And then the idea of like the funding stuff that I've honestly no idea like how to how to grow the funding of Australian climbing. Um, I think I'm so focused on growing the funding of Campbell's climbing, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I think if the if there was like maybe more cohesion between like amongst the team and then maybe more like cooperation uh, between the team and the gyms, we might be able to get a li- little bit more going. But, you know, like it is, it is improving. It is getting better in some ways and then it's very stagnant in others. Well, I guess like stagnant in what ways? Just like the setting? or We're growing in terms of the caliber of our athletes, but stagnant in terms of things like those those training camps, training events, um, having consistent uh, competition schedules as well. Like for this year, we didn't have a lead nationals and we ended up having to have a lead selection, which was just like a, like a sort of tailored down version of a lead nationals with only a qualification round. You know, it happened at from like 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. on a Friday, you know. Um, so, yeah, it's quite interesting that there's so many more gyms and like so much money within the climbing industry at a commercial level. But then, um, you know, we, we can't get venues to host elite nationals for a couple of days or, you know, host a training camp for an afternoon, that sort of thing. So, yeah. It's, it's progressing in so many ways and then in other ways. Yeah, not much change is really happening, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm actually not sure if it's if there's a lot of money at the commercial level. I've heard a lot of commercial gyms um, actually struggle quite a bit just to, like, break even. Um, mm. I've, like... Because I I wanted to like own a gym at some point or that was like a goal and I looked into it a bit and it seemed like you had to be pretty well off just to get it started. Yeah, I think I think I just look at like we've got some we've got some like big franchises of gyms within Australia that like opening sort of venue after venue. Um, And I think also I, I, I do work part time at a climbing gym, so I get that little insight um on the amount of people that are coming through some of the facilities so i think yeah and i mean and also just you know like i said this year number the increase in the number of climbing gyms that we have is kind of telling that there's there's something here you know um but yeah it hasn't it hasn't translated into high performance just yet which makes sense and it'll it'll come along i just think we haven't figured out exactly what the next step is and I'm not sure either what the next step is. 
Yeah, hopefully it'll come. Um, and that sort of reminds me of the Athletes Commission. Um, I'm not sure if that has any bearing on how it can affect um, like climbing at like the Australian national level. But um, yeah, I was wondering a bit about the Athletes Commission and what, um, I guess, first of all, what is it? And why haven't we really heard about it? Because I feel like this is the first year that we heard anything about it. Yeah, this is, it's interesting. It's one of those things that I think when you're an athlete in the circuit, um, it's something that you know about and you kind of just assume that other people do. But I guess it's like a very, it's a very valid point that like up until now, how would how would the general public have known that there was an athletes commission that, you know, every world championship we have a vote, a vote you know, where there's like ballot papers and everything or this year it was online. Um, but yeah, basically the... Basically, the IFSC Athletes Commission is a uh, collection of athletes that act as kind of like an um, advisory voice to the IFSC. And our president and vice president, Shauna Coxie and Sean McCall, sit on the IFSC board. So um, basically, we have meetings every month where we discuss a myriad of, of different issues that pertain to um, athlete rights, whether it be considering um, like certain rules or the setup of venues, the way athletes are maybe um, treated within those venues, all sorts of things. Like there's a, sometimes you talk about the sustainability of events and whether or not we as athletes can support certain events going ahead in the way that they are. You know, we, we cover a lot of too many different topics probably for the amount of time we spend actually meeting together. But um, yeah, we advise Sean and Shauna on how we feel about certain issues and then we, they present um that feedback to the IFSC board. Um, so yeah, for me, I thought I decided to go for it at this year's world championship because as far as I know, we've never had an athlete from the Oceania region on the athletes commission before. And so I thought it was a really unique opportunity to, um, give the perspective, not only of my region, but just generally smaller climbing nations with less funding. I think we have like very different issues to some of the other nations and so I thought it was really important that uh someone you know amongst that that group of climbers was was able to get in there and um I think I'm a relatively outspoken member of the climbing community and because I've been solo for a lot of the world cups I'm quite well connected amongst the climbing community um so I thought I was in like a, a unique position to be able to um hopefully you know get that position which i end up doing and um yeah being able to make a difference over the the course of my term and also just you know learn more about how the sport works in other places so that then i can hopefully impart that knowledge upon my own region and maybe you know answer some of these questions that we've been talking about so far that we don't really quite have the answers to yet yeah what kind of i guess causes are you hoping to champion as part of the athletes commission I think I would love to see the World Cup circuit be a bit more like geographically inclusive, um, you know, being laid out in a way that it makes a little bit more sense for athletes who don't live in Europe to, you know, be able to come participate in events in succession. Um, I have like a notepad 
somewhere where I've written out a bunch of this stuff. Please excuse this brief intermission, but I would just like to take some time and remind you that if you are enjoying this podcast, please follow and rate it on your preferred listening platform. If you're watching on YouTube, be sure to subscribe and hit the like button. Anything helps to push this podcast out to more people and get even more amazing guests on. Back to the show. I had like a little brainstorm that I did when I signed up for the Athletes Commission and and what I wanted to get out of being there. Um, I think, yeah, for me, there were the sort of geographical inclusivity that we've been talking about. Um, I think I'd like to see greater regulation of um, route setting uh, practices within the sport. So kind of standardizing route setting a little bit. I think at the moment, route setters have a lot of freedom or the potential for a lot of freedom to influence results. You know, essentially what a competition looks like, what a round looks like is almost entirely up to the head route setter as to what they, you know, see climbing being like. And I don't think any of our route setters are trying to like influence the results of competitions, but nevertheless, like the potential for that to happen is there. Um, So, you know, uh, some more, uh, yeah, more regulation, I guess, into what like, climbing rounds should look like what is the style of climbing like what are these different disciplines trying to test um i also would like to see more growth made in terms of like athlete health the sort of bmi red s discussion as well um yeah and just just increase improving the like general treatment of athletes and um the like the valuation of athletes you know within the sport at the end of the day there's so many different roles that make climbing competitions happen uh but at the end of the day you know climbing comps don't happen unless you have athletes on the wall putting on a show and sometimes you know it doesn't it doesn't feel like that's really acknowledged you know when you look at the the prize pool that's put up for an ifsc event for instance or the fact that you know we I guess, you know, finish, you'll have Yanya Gamba finishing a world championship and then having to walk out into a, a crowd of people, you know, swarming her and that sort of thing. And it's not really like safe or practical. Yeah. The more that I think about it, the more I was like, not just in climbing, but all sports in general, how athletes are kind of a product, I guess, that people kind of just like view and watch for a bit and then if they like age out or they get injured, it's kind of just like you're discarded now. You're like an old product. Does it kind of feel like that? Yeah, that's product is a really good word for it because I think at the moment we're viewed as products or sometimes I feel like we're even viewed as um, consumers. Like we, we come to the event and we like, like the event is put on for us despite there being a, we're standing in a stadium of thousands of people Sometimes it feels like the events are put on for us and we should be just like grateful that this is happening so that we can do the thing we want to do, which in some cases is true. But on the other hand, like we're also almost like employees of climbing, you know, like we're, the, we're in some ways the performers that are putting on the show, you know, these people, are these thousands of people are coming to these stadiums to watch us perform. Um, and so, yeah, there's like a little bit of a disconnect there, I guess. But I think product is a really good word for it. You know, where, yeah, we're viewed as like, yeah, the the end product that's put out there when really we're 
um, like, you know, it's, it's on the basis of our labor that these events are able to draw in the crowds that they do, I guess. Yeah. It's a, it's a little bit dark though, but I guess these are all issues we, uh, we should try to solve. Um, you also mentioned about route setters and keeping everything more consistent. Um, I always wondered if it would ever happen where someone would like pay off a route setter or like bribe them to set so that someone could specifically win. Oh, look, there's it's one of those topics that's really hard to get into without putting your foot in your mouth. I think um, there are certainly there are certainly events in the past where you can look back on and you see some things happening that are just a little bit suspicious. But I think also just, yeah, just the idea that like a, a particular route setter who might be head route setter could say internally, you know, oh, this, ath- like this athlete I really like or this athlete I've, you know, potentially been paid off to set for is really good at this style. There's nothing stopping me from setting this style on every single boulder if that as, a, you know, if I as the head route setter want that to be the, you know, the vibe of the competition. So you know, just, yeah, just more regulations put in place that ensure a diversity of boulders across a round, you know? Yeah, interesting. I kind of brought that up as just, like, a thought. I didn't know it had actually happened. You know, I don't want to, of course, like, name any names or point any fingers, but, yeah, the the potential to influence the results of climbing competitions uh, through the route setting is very real, um, and so I think that that's something we need to think about while the sport is a bit younger. We have a good opportunity to, like, build a base you know upon which we have safe and fair competitions rather than the sport getting bigger and bigger and bigger before we've kind of put those uh foundations in place and it's maybe harder to implement them further down the road sort of related to that do you feel like so i guess that's sort of in reference to maybe specific like competitions but in general with like the boulder and lead combined format do you feel like they've been doing a pretty good job of keeping that even I think so. Um, I've been, I've been pres- pleasantly surprised with how much I've enjoyed the watching the combined format and how much I like look forward to competing in the combined format. Um, I think at first when I saw the like point system, I thought it seemed a little bit like a like a game show or something. It seemed a bit silly that like oh you get you know this many points for doing this and that many points for that, and I worried that you know it would favor one discipline over the other. But like ultimately, I think you really do have to be good at both because in any given round, the boulder round might be worth more, the lead round might be worth more. So like you have to be prepared to perform in either of them. Um, And yeah, so far, I think it's been like really interesting to see uh, how different rounds maybe sway a bit more towards one discipline or the other, but it seems to balance out in a sense. Like I haven't seen, you know, that like yeah you you just you have to be good at both at the end of the day and i think that's like really cool to watch that you've got to be able to you've got to be ready to take the opportunity in either round yeah i mean definitely cool to watch i don't (laughs) know how it's like actually having to do that and experience it as an athlete um but yeah going back to athletes commission um do you feel like uh the IFSC listens to the athletes either like within athletes commission or outside of athletes commission. Um, I think 
being a part of the Athletes Commission is very new for me. I think I'm really yet to see whether or not our voice is heard. Um, just because, you know, we haven't really, um, yeah, I, I just haven't really had any instances yet where we've presented something like really big and really important to the IFSC. Um, and they've kind of had the opportunity to respond. They could probably, the IFSC could probably, um, seek out feedback a little bit more than they already do from the athletes and from the athletes commission. But at the same time, like I am seeing work happen, um, to improve that, like to improve the communication between the athletes and the IFSC. So, um, yeah, I think my, my perspective is kind of still pending on that question. Well, you know, ask me in a year maybe, and we'll see how I feel about it. Okay. Yeah. We'll follow up. Um, yeah, another one of the things that you mentioned being on your list of things to um, talk about in terms of Athletes Commission is the Red S issue. Um, and I mean, I know that's something everyone's talking about, and hopefully they will be taking some kind of action on it. Uh, I guess that's still to be to, to be determined. Um, but you also mentioned that you've sort of had your own experience with it. Um, is that something that you'd want to go into yeah yeah like it's um it's definitely something I'm happy to talk about because I think um I think it's it's really easy to look at the minority of athletes who who lose a ton of weight and see huge increases in their performance um whereas I think the experience of quite a lot of us is that we fell into um, really negative habits around eating and trying desperately to lose weight and being as small as possible um, and just uh, kind of crashed and burned in a lot of senses. I think for every, yeah, for every athlete who loses 5, 10 kilos and becomes a superstar World Cup winner, there's probably 10, 20, 30 athletes who, who uh, lost a bunch of weight and ended up in the hospital or... Um, ended up quitting climbing and not competing or not, you know, reaching their goals and having a myriad of mental and physical health problems. And so I think that's kind of more my experience of, um, of like, well, not so much my experience because obviously I'm still climbing and I'm still climbing well, but I think my experience of when I was suffering through my eating disorder was, yeah, just having so much trouble like maintaining my maintaining my mood maintaining my training maintaining my weight um like all of these fluctuations and all of these issues and I think um yeah it, it's quite quite damaging I guess to paint red s in the light that it has been painted in that it's like this shortcut to success whereas I think in a lot of instances it's it's quite the opposite it's quite like destructive to people's climbing careers well, I I had no idea that it was so common. Like when it was when you were experiencing it, was it were you like aware that you were doing it or was it just kind of like the side effect of the sport and it just didn't even I guess like register to you that you were doing something harmful? I think in a lot of ways having an eating disorder felt mandatory in the sport. And I know how like horrible and dark that sounds, but like, um, it felt like 
felt like if I was turning up to a competition and I didn't look thin enough, then people would assume that I didn't care enough or that I wasn't, um, yeah, that I wasn't dedicated. Um, I think there was a lot of, yeah, a lot of discussion and a lot of rhetoric around, oh, this is how little I eat leading up to a competition or, oh, like I'm doing so well today. I haven't eaten since blah, blah, blah. Um, and I think, I think, yeah, that's, that's changing in a lot of ways now that we're actually like having the discussion and it's becoming more like publicly known, these sort of darker aspects of the sport. But yeah, I think it felt, it felt like in the, in the, in the community that I grew up in, it kind of felt like it was something that I had to be doing and that's sort of how I fell into it. And, um, and yeah, really like started to struggle with it, I guess. Oh, wow. So it was like an actual discussion amongst athletes. Like this is something that you guys would talk about. Yeah, I think so. Um, not when, like for me, not when it started. I think it was just, I felt like, um, like it was very much just this like number on the scales that I wanted to push down and felt very objective in that sense. And then it kind of started to develop into more of like an emotional, um, an emotional like weighting on the number on the scale. Um, but yeah, I definitely know, like I remember a lot of instances within the sport, yeah, where people would be having these discussions of like, you know, yeah, I don't eat between this time and this time, or I only eat this many calories in a day, or, um, you know, in the however long before the competition, I'm trying to lose this much. Um, and while these discussions are happening, like what you're seeing, like what I'm seeing in front of me is athletes, you know, getting worse and worse and worse at their climbing and having these like massive detriments to their performance as they're like desperately chasing the lowest number on the scale that they can. And then what people are telling you is that, oh, eating disorders are terrible in climbing, but they get you really good. You're going to be really like, you know, it's really strong when I was as light as possible, but you know, then it was really bad for me. But then I think like, that's not actually really the case. Like, um, I think a lot of climbers who have tried to lose a lot of weight or have these struggles with eating and with their body image and such like um tend to see a lot more detriment than benefit um in actual fact but that's not really like the the narrative that we see around it how did you sort of get out of that um the eating disorder for yourself like like i said it started off as this like very objective goal to just like reduce the number on the scale um, and then it started to turn like a little bit more emotional. I had more of like a, um, like an emotional connection to like whether I was perceiving myself as light enough to be, you know, a self-respecting professional climber or whatever. Um, and then that for me turned into a quite a, um, serious like binge eating issue. So binging restricting and that's sort of the pattern you see with a lot of climbers is, um, trying really hard to adhere to these like rules that these climbers are setting of, you know, not eating this much or not eating, you know, these times, whatever it might be. And so you, um, yeah, you fall into these patterns of working really hard to try and be as thin as possible. Eventually you can't keep up with this, um, image of perfection. You set yourself and you, you slip up and you binge and then you think, oh, that was a horrible mistake. I have to erase what I've done. Um, and so you restrict harder, which then means you binge harder because, you know, your body just, it, it doesn't let you 
start like in a lot of instances it just won't let you start yourself like that and so i think for me i had to just like completely um i had to like completely break the cycle and learn to like if i had these like these binges these slip-ups i had to just um had to just learn to accept that they happened and that they didn't it like it wasn't a mistake that needed to be rectified or fixed that it was my body telling me that it was underfueled and under-resourced and that I needed to um yeah if 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 I was if I had like a slip up and I felt like and I had a binge it was because I wasn't treating my body with the respect it needed so rather than depriving it even more what I needed to do was give it that respect and then eventually over the course of years managed to sort of for the most part um heal that relationship between you know my body and my mind and my perception of myself and i still have dip more difficult days more difficult periods but yeah just learning to um see those signs and like act accordingly i guess if that makes sense it's a very personal journey so i think yeah. everyone goes through it differently um but it's Good to hear that you've mostly worked through it um, and hopefully it's not still going on, um, especially with all the attention that's been brought to it. Um, I think people are just a lot more on alert in like the mm-hmm. public and hopefully among athletes as well. Yeah, it's like it is, it is a very complicated topic and it is very full on. I've talked about it a lot on like my social media, but um, I guess I learned to just like incorporate these like incorporate the joy of food just into my um my like daily routines and yeah learning that if yeah if i if i felt like i was falling short of my goals within food it was probably because my body was trying to tell me something and like learning to actually listen to my body and and respect those messages that my body was giving me rather than thinking my body was something that i had to fight against that like feelings of hunger or feelings of being unsatiated was something that I had to battle against. It's actually it's actually your body trying to tell you something and you can probably get a lot more out of listening to those messages than, you know, fighting against them. These days, do you still hear that kind of talk between athletes where it's like about how little you've ate or things like that? Um, definitely not to the same. No, I think the rhetoric has changed a lot, honestly. Like, Weight management and weight loss is a part of climbing at the end of the day. I think it's silly to pretend that it's not. And like, it's something that as an athlete, you like, you do have to be aware of, I guess, you know? Um, But I think, yeah, I think the discussions are becoming a lot healthier. And I think the discussions I've been having with athletes are a lot more about what what I've been saying is, you know, um, rather than like in the past, it might've been like, oh, when I am really hungry, I do this to make myself not hungry anymore. Or when I feel like I've um, eaten too many calories, I'm going to do this to get rid of those calories. That kind of used to be the discussion. And now the discussion is more about like, yeah, oh, when I'm feeling this way, I remember that this is my body trying to tell me something and that I need to change what I'm doing or I'm going to start to, you know, fall down a slippery slope. I think it's a lot, it's a lot healthier, the discussion around it, which is an important step. But then at the same time, I think that doesn't mean that athletes aren't aren't also suffering in the background. You know, you can say one thing and then 
also be struggling. Yeah. Well, it's good to hear that it's improved a bit. Um, and also related to this, uh, had a Discord question come through asking what dichotomies, if any, are there in regards to the impact of Red S between um, men and women competition climbers? This is a really like, this is another really interesting aspect of it as well, because I think, I think the pressures, the pressures to be like small are similar across male and female athletes. Um, I think in the discussions around Red S though, people tend to be more critical of women, um, which I mean, lo and behold, that's kind of how our society is in general. People are more critical of women. Um, but yeah, with, with regard to Red S, there's a lot more discussion of like um, how female athletes look and whether they look too skinny. Um, or they look like, like, you know, oh, she has a problem, you know, she is anorexic. But then in actual fact, I think the problem is just as big, if not bigger within the men. Um, but because we, you know, when we lose weight, we maintain our muscle mass a lot more easily. So our general shape doesn't change. We still have like these big biceps and big shoulders. And so people think that like, it's not as much of a problem within the men. Um, but from my experience, that's just not the case. And I think we see a lot of men, if maybe if not, if not more men with dangerously low body fat levels, as opposed to the women who look thin, but maybe aren't necessarily suffering those like red S symptoms. And so I think that's why the, that's why developing screening is really important because you can't just tell if someone's sick by looking at them. Yeah. I think that also brings up the important point that it's not great to discuss people's bodies, whether or not you think that it's concerning because mm -hmm. there might not be an issue. Yeah, for sure. I think it's, it's really complicated to like, because, you know, if if you're going to bring up the fact that you think there is an issue with like um, athlete, like climbing athletes being underweight, that's like inherently bringing bodies into the conversation. Um, but yeah, I think it needs to be like a little bit more nuanced than this person looks like they're sick. You know, it needs to be a little bit more objective and scientific than that, I guess. Yeah. And it's hard to do that just looking through a screen. <laughs> Yeah, 100%, 100%. Yeah. But yeah, was there anything else you wanted to touch on in terms of Red S? Because otherwise we're just going to totally shift gears to maybe something a little happier. Yeah, no, that, I know. What a like, what a like depressingly sad topic. Um, no, I mean, unless you have any more questions about it, like, yeah, I think it's a, it's, um, it's a huge issue within climbing that we need to get on top of. And I think, you know, having... Like we talk about not not judging people's bodies, but then at the same time, a lot of these athletes are the role models of the sport. And I think, um, you know, my my inclinations as a young person towards trying to lose weight, a lot of them came from looking at the athletes who were leading the way, like who were you know at the tops of podiums and things, and seeing their body types and feeling like I needed to adhere to some kind of version of that as well. And so, you know, if we're allowing athletes who embody um, you know, who, who we're allowing like red F, red S athletes who embody, um, these sort of like negative weight loss principles to represent the sport, then the problem is just going to like self-perpetuate. So 
you know, I think we've got to do something to, uh, to, yeah, change the, the perception that people have of climbing, you know, it might, and it might involve, uh, restricting the participation of certain athletes who meet certain criteria within the sport. Yeah, well put. And thanks for going into your own story. I know that's always not not always easy to um, share and open up in that way. So appreciate that. Um, but yeah, let's switch gears into something that's hopefully a bit less uh, a bit less sad. Um, yeah, let's yeah, look forward to the Olympics that are coming up um, yeah. and the qualification process. Um, I guess first. Of all, you had also wanted to, I mean, you were competing at the time when the 2021 Olympics were happening. Um, and I saw a podcast that you did a long time ago uh, that was before the qualification process for that. Um, I forget if it was before COVID or not, but um, I think, I mean, we all know that you did not end up representing Australia for the 2021 Olympics. So what happened in the qualifying process there? It's funny. So this is also like a very sad, depressing topic. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm happy to get into it if you want to. Um, but it's also like, yeah, it, it, it was, uh, it was a bad time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, no, it's if you want to. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm happy to discuss it. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just if you wanted to like get into something more fun, like it's not really that fun. Okay, um, we'll we'll do the fun part after. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So basically, um, going into the qualifications for the Tokyo Olympics, I was also the first seeded athlete, so I was the highest ranked athlete going into those qualifications. And then the pandemic hit, and the event got cancelled slash postponed. And so essentially, the way the selection criteria worked was that if I um, if I if the event got cancelled, I was qualified for the Olympics. If the event went ahead, then it was obviously going to be a competition, um, and whoever won the event was going to go to the Olympics. But the problem there was that because within Australia and New Zealand everything was so tightly locked down, the borders were so tightly controlled that um, running an event wouldn't necessarily mean that everybody would get to compete. Um, so it was quite. Uh, like a difficult time with things going back and forth like the event was happening then it wasn't then it was then it wasn't um and you know eventually we got to the point where um the event was going ahead and we all got there the um the first day went kind of badly for me i think i false started in the speed which meant that i was like i had like the worst ranking in the brackets for the finals event um and then we were sitting in my hotel room i was sitting there in my hotel room with my partner um watching the news before the final started and they announced on the news that the borders would be closing um between uh all the states across australia meaning that basically you either had to like because we were in sydney and i live in melbourne so we were going to have to leave sydney to get back over the border in time or either be stuck in Sydney or have to like go through a two week hotel quarantine, um, scenario. And my older sister at the time had just been diagnosed with stage three breast cancer. And so, um, my parents really wanted me home to spend, uh, 
Christmas with my family and with my sister before she started chemotherapy, before she started a treatment. And so I went to the competition, I went into finals for isolation and I had no idea what to do. Um, and I was in tears the whole time, went out to climb, didn't do well in the speed round and like ultimately made the decision that I would leave the event, go home to be with my family. Cause I wasn't sure if I would be able to qualify and I couldn't decide like, yeah, it was, ju- it was just a horrible, like tough decision. So at the end I left the event. Um, and then at the end of the event, I think out of the 20 athletes that were initially slated to compete in the men's round, only seven men, I think, ended up finishing the competition and maybe even less women. Um, yeah, so that was like a really, really like tough call and something that I like grappled with for a, a really, really long time afterwards. And like I look back and I still don't even really know if I made the right decision on whether or not I should have stayed and stuck it out and like dealt with those consequences or gone home and been with my family. Um, but you know, I think now I look back at it at the end of the day, like it is what it is. What happened, happened. Um, Tom O'Halloran who did qualify for the spot was like super deserving as well. You know, like whether or not I'd stayed, um, he was absolutely, um, you know, had exceptional chances to take that spot like he did in the end. Um, but yeah, no, so that was like a, super super tough time the whole process going into it was really really hard um a lot of like back and forth and people saying things online and all sorts of stuff and it was really really tough but um yeah and then but then afterwards you know i i once the process of trying to qualify was over i was able to like really grow from that and ended up having some like really really great world cup seasons so you know there's positives to take from it but it was like yeah it was a pretty full-on experience over the course of like a year or so, I think. Jeez. Yeah. Well, gosh, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, I hope she's doing better now. Yeah. 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 She's, she's doing, she's doing, she's still, you know, the, the battle continues, but yeah. you know, she's doing well. Okay. Well, that's good to hear at least. Um, we wish the best for her. Oh yeah. Like I said, you know, yeah. Also a very, um, <laughs> kind of depressing topic for the podcast so yeah we can we can move on to happier stuff as well if you want to okay well thank you for sharing i think usually when people look back on these things they're usually happy about making the decision to like stick with family um especially in hard times um and i mean you have another chance now so yeah yeah and so like it was you know i think it was quite um interesting coming into this olympics because there was or this olympic selection process is there was like definitely a little bit of trauma from the last time mm-hmm. of that whole process happening um but like i was able to like recognize that you know this is something that i i really want mm-hmm. and i was really excited about this process rather than last time where it was so full of like dread and yeah. grief and indecision like this time it's been fulfilled with like so much passion and ambition and I'm really excited about this opportunity and you know if I don't qualify in November then I'm also really excited about the opportunity to get to do the Olympic qualifier series next year hopefully and so um it's just like as 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 sad and depressing and whatever as that whole last experience was you know and, and everything that I was going through at that time I'm like so much healthier and so much stronger and happier now um that like yeah this this process so far is has been um really 
uh, joyful, which is such a juxtaposition to the last one. So I'm like super grateful in that yeah. sense. Yeah, that's really great to hear. And how do you feel about competing this time without the speed discipline being added into everything? Oh, so good. So good. I think that was like also part of the last process was that um, I had a really hard time making up my mind as to whether or not I actually wanted to do the combined format. Um, I just, I, I, I really appreciate and respect speed climbing, but it's just not for me. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, that was also something I was grappling with through that whole process is like as hard as it was, I wasn't, my heart wasn't completely in it. Whereas this time with the lead boulder combined, like that's the, those are the disciplines that I fell in love with. And so, um, yeah, my heart really is in this one, a hundred percent and I'm able to like enjoy the process of it as a result, not just like, you know, not just looking towards the outcome, but also enjoying the journey. It's a little bit of a shame as a viewer, just because it was actually pretty fun watching non-speed climbers and seeing how well they could do on the speed route since it's just so much more, I guess, like consistent and you can, it's just like interesting to see. So, but I understand, of course, like it's not, people don't really want to do it if they're not into it. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad that the speed climbers get their own medal this time. Cause I think that combined format, like really shafted them. Oh yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really nice that they get to have their own set of medals this time. And I think everyone's a little bit happy, happier for it. I think we'll be even happier when the three disciplines are split. Um, but this combined format is, is, is fun. I think it's really cool. I think it's fun to watch and like, I'm enjoying it so far. Yeah. Do you have hopes for it getting split in like LA games? From what I understand, that's the the plan is to get three medals for the LA games. Um, and that, yeah, it'll be quite cool. Like also, you know, having multiple opportunities to claim an Olympic spot as well. Like you claim a spot in Boulder or lead rather than just the one for both. Um, that's like quite cool as well. Um, Cause it is a lot of pressure to, you know, just try and perform really well across both disciplines and to take one spot. Yeah. Do you think if it is split in the future, you'll try for both? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think that's my plan. That's something I'll probably have to decide, you know, come the next uh, like selection cycle. Um, but I think, I think I would like to try and qualify for both. But at the end of the day, uh, I'm much more of a lead specialist than a boulder specialist. And so if I feel like also doing bouldering is going to be detrimental to my chances in lead, that might impact my decision. But I've always done both, so I would imagine that I would still try to do both. Okay. Yeah, I think it would be interesting to see how things change because I would think a lot more people will probably try to just focus on one. And then it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Because, I mean, a lot of people are great at both right now. And I wonder what it would look like if they just focused on one, all of their energy onto one. If it'd be, like, unstoppable. Yeah, yeah. I'm really, I'm also really curious to see what people do. Um, I think there's, there are probably a few more, generally speaking, there are more, like, boulder specialists than there are lead specialists. Yeah. Um, so I wonder if like the participations across the disciplines will 
will shift as well. Um, but yeah, I guess we'll see when it happens, you know. You got to think about some some strategy going into that. But yeah, I think sure. that's quite in the future, um, another five years. So we have some time. Mm. Um, yeah, thinking about the upcoming one, how do you think your training would change if you qualified in the Oceania um, championships versus if you had to wait again until OQS? Um, I think either way, I'll be taking a little break um, right after that comp, uh, which will be nice. Um, and then the season will start again. Either way, the season will start up again quite soon. Um, I think if I'm competing in the OQS, the training will kick off sooner because the first OQS round is in like uh, April or May, I think. Um, but I mean, either way, my mindset at the moment is just to to go in 110%. I think my chances for of qualifying in the Continental event are obviously exponentially higher than they are in the OQS, for instance. But the way I look at it now is just whatever happens, I'm going to be 110% committed to either competing in the Olympic Games or grabbing a ticket at the OQS. And I don't want to, I want to finish feeling like I didn't leave anything behind. So I don't think there'll be too many changes to my approach in that respect. Well, we're rooting for you. Yeah, thank you. What do you think, what's considered a break for you? Because I feel like a break for proper athletes is very different from what I consider a break um well I have like a little trip to New Zealand um planned where I think I will do little to no climbing um usually a break will be like one to two weeks of no climbing at all um and then maybe one to two weeks of climbing when I want to or it's kind of what I do when I say I'm taking a break I just climb as much as I feel like climbing um I think like if I wasn't if I wasn't a an athlete I probably wouldn't climb quite as much as I do you know like I wouldn't be doing like double sessions five days a week blah, blah, blah. like I'd probably just be climbing you know like three to four days a week for a couple of hours and trying the boulders that I think are fun and that sort of thing so yeah a break is just like embracing that side of myself and Sometimes I get to the end of a season, I have like three days off and I'm like, no, I want to go climbing. And then I think last time I got to the last year, I got to the end of my season and I took two weeks off with no climbing and I had to like force myself to go back because, okay, it's time to start training again. So it depends, but I just, you know, I just go with the flow and do what feels right. Yeah, that sounds reasonable. Um, Okay. Well, I'm excited to watch you climb. Uh, Hopefully it'll be streamed and easy to watch. Yeah, there should be a there should be a live stream on YouTube. I think okay. that'll be open access for everybody. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. Excited to watch. Um, and now going into the last section, a few Discord questions. Um, I already went through a few while we were just talking, but uh, we have I think three others that either just like didn't really fit. Um, so the first one. This one I I just I actually have no idea about. Um, it relates to climbing in Australia. I think outside as well. I don't know how much outside climbing you do. I, I don't tend to climb outside a lot these days. When I was in my teens, I did a lot of rock climbing, but nowadays not so much. Okay. Um. 
Well, you probably still have a bit of insight into it. Um, do yeah. you feel like climbers are used as an easy target by state governments in regards to Aboriginal heritage? Um, because they're a societal outgroup and it deflects away from other more severe sources of harm to Aboriginal communities, such as the mining industry. Ooh, um, I'd say yes and no. Um, yes and no. I think, um, yeah, I think there are definitely people within certain organizations that do use climbing as, uh, um, like as a scapegoat to, yeah either reduce access to certain areas or yeah. Um, but, but I think at the same time, you know, climbing and climbers need to, um, acknowledge, you know, the role that we play in the protection of, of first nations heritage within Australia and within other countries as well. And, you know, sometimes that is going to mean like not climbing in certain areas. I think anyone who's been to the Grampians, who's climbed in crags, like, kindergarten or Muline or the gallery you know you look at these caves and it's impossible to think that over the course of 90,000 years of history that people haven't lived and died in these caves and you know that they aren't sacred spaces and I think you know to some degree bolting them and covering them with chalk and doing what we whatever we do you know is 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 to some degree desecrating these places that were taken by First Nations people through horrific genocide. So, um, yeah, I think it's important that as climbers we acknowledge the role we have to play and sometimes it's going to mean not climbing in certain areas. I think on the other hand, though, there are instances where um, state bodies maybe could, yeah, maybe we could be putting in a little bit more work to ensure that we are keeping climbers out of the right areas and then still providing everybody access to areas that are like safe for us mm-hmm. to recreate in without damaging cultural heritage, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I guess for context, what are some of the restrictions that have been put in place? Um, I, a lot of the Grampians has just become um, a subject to straight up no climbing bans or certain areas you can only climb in if you have a um like a guide with you i i definitely wouldn't say i'm like a foremost expert on this on this topic um but yeah i think i think different people within different organizations have varying ideas of what climbers should and shouldn't have access to and i think some of which is very very valid like some of these climbing spaces are quite close to like protective cave paintings and like sacred sites and yet like i said it makes sense that we aren't able to climb in those spaces um because you know uh white european settlement only came to australia within the last like two centuries so um we have to be respectful of the land that we've you know um that we find ourselves upon um but yeah at the same time i think there's also yeah there's room to like make these assessments of these places and ensure climbers that, you know, where it is safe for us to climb, that we will have access to those spaces. Okay. Makes sense. Um, yeah. Next question. What are your thoughts on Eubank grading? Um, I think it's far easier to understand than most other grading systems and being open-ended is a bonus that avoids the muddled lower end of our UK trad grades. 
Um, so if you could also go into what the grading system is like, because I'm not very familiar with that. Yeah. Well, I mean, you kind of hit like the the nail on the head a little bit in that the Ubang grade is just like super easy. Um, it's just a it's just a um, it's just a number system. So like for instance, I think a eight A, um, you know, European sports grade is a twenty nine in Australia. Eight A plus is thirty. Eight B is thirty one. So on and so forth. Thirty two, thirty three, thirty four. Um, although I feel like because I spend so much time climbing overseas, I tend to default into the European grading anyway. Um, yeah, I, I think, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, grading is all subjective and it kind of ends up equating more or less to the same thing um, anyway. Uh, I think it, it is it is kind of nice that Eubank doesn't have these like cluster grades, you know, in the same way that the United States have like, 513, 514, like you have these brackets, the Ubank system just kind of progresses point by point. Um, but like grades are grades, it's all much for muchness in the end. Yeah. Yeah. And last question, um, something we actually didn't touch on too much, but this is your chance to go into it if you want. Um, is it or I'm interested in your views on pro climbing and queerness. Is it an easy community to be openly LGBTQ plus in? And how does it feel competing in countries where it's frowned upon or illegal? Um, I believe one of the OQS is in the Middle East, for example. Uh, I think that for the most part, I found the climbing community quite accepting of like me as a queer person. That's not to say that there like isn't homophobia and discrimination within the community, and I think that's more um, that's more accentuated at the international level because, like you said, you know you have this this mixing pot of all these different cultures, and um, you know, yeah, some people are going to feel less strongly about your uh, human rights, you know, love the love and that sort of thing, and it can be quite scary, like. I was competing in the world championships in Russia a few years back and um, yeah, it can be quite scary like that like I'm someone who paints my nails and you know, maybe someone on the street might, you know, see that as a sign that I'm a queer person and have an issue with it or um, that people will see me and my partner at a competition and have an issue with that. So like there's a, there are um, definitely like certain aspects to it that we as queer people have to like take into consideration a little more than others do. Um, but yeah, for the most part, I think my experiences as a queer climber have been quite, quite positive. Um, I think most of the controversy comes in when I try to, when I try to discuss like my queerness and my athleticism or my climbing kind of in the same vein, um, I can sometimes get a lot of negative feedback and that people saying that like you know being gay doesn't have anything to do with climbing but um at the end of the day like they're two important facets of who I am and so like they are you know they don't none of it exists in a vacuum so yeah it's an interesting uh, interplay I guess has it ever like affected you to the point where you have to sort of consider if a competition is one that you would want to go to yeah, I definitely, um, I definitely had like an internal um, battle, I guess, 
with regard to like whether or not I would go and compete in Russia. Um, or I was like, I'm, um, I'm an ambassador for an organization in Australia called proud to play. And one of the things that I have of theirs is I have this, it's just like a towel. Like every athlete comes out to a bouldering round almost with a towel. They can clean their shoes and stuff. And my towel has a pride flag on it. And you know, there are some countries where I'm like, oh, I, I don't know if I should come out onto the field wearing this pride flag. But then at the same time, maybe it's even more important that I come out onto the field wearing pride flag in some of these countries. Um, so yeah, it's, you know, it's something that I have to think about. Um, and I think, I think the, the OQS round in the Middle East got canceled in the end. I think now it's just, um, Shanghai and Budapest. Um, but it, yeah, it is, it is something that I have to think about when, you know, coming, comes to making a decision about which comps to attend to and which not. Yeah. And did they replace it with a different location or it's just gone? Uh, unfortunately, we, we're just going to have two rounds of the OQS now, um, which is good because for a little while, I think the fear was that there was going to be one round. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it should be, yeah, sh- I, as far as the dates that have been confirmed at this stage, yeah, it'll be um, the, the two rounds of the OQS. So a little bit shorter than the planned three, but should still be good. Okay. Um, all right. I think that's all of the questions I had. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to touch on? Yeah, it's been, it's been fun. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me on board. And I'm glad we managed to get together and like have this chat and I'm looking forward to, um, yeah, like seeing the full piece. Yeah. Thank you for joining me. Um, is there anything you want to like shout out or let people know where they can find you? Yeah. I mean, if anyone wants to follow me, you can find me on Instagram, uh, at Campbell underscore Harrison 547. Um, that's probably the best way to keep track with, uh, keep up with what I'm doing. Um, yeah. Otherwise, um, no, I think that's like, yeah, that's everything. Unless you have any more questions, I'm happy with that. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you again. It was amazing to talk to you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much for making it to the end of the podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, I would love to hear your discussion and thoughts in the comments below. And don't forget to like and subscribe if you enjoyed. If you're listening through a podcasting platform, I'd appreciate if you rate it five stars and you can continue the discussion through my competition climbing discord um, linked in all of the descriptions through all the platforms. Thanks again for listening. 